Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So it gives me pleasure to share the Dharma tonight. And I hope that what I share is useful uh, for your practice. Use whatever is helpful and relevant and leave the rest. I wanted to uh, talk tonight about a topic that I've explored um, a lot in uh, the last few years. And I wrote a book about it and um, lead a course in it. Um, The book and the course are called Awakening Joy, but what I really want to talk about is to see the Dharma as a a path of happiness. Sometimes um, that can um, somehow be obscured with so much um, talk about suffering and the overcoming of suffering, the Four Noble Truths, there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to an end to suffering. And uh, one can forget that this is about happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. And I uh, got into uh, exploring this for myself because um, although coming into the Dharma was uh, the greatest the greatest gift in my life uh, and just pointed me as I'm sure everybody here can um, uh, can agree in their own hearts pointed me in the direction of real happiness and when I came to it I, I found like I felt like I had just come home and I was so grateful so um, on fire, so um, mm, deeply moved. And I had what is uh, sometimes called a long honeymoon period. <clears throat> I did a lot of retreats. Um, and uh, my, my life, my daily life was kind of what I did to keep me going so I could be practicing uh, and I know that that's, that's so for some people here. You're right in the middle of a very profound process where there's so much that you're discovering that uh, this is the, the most compelling part of, of your world. Um, if that's not so, don't... Remember I gave a talk on the comparing mind. Don't, uh, don't judge yourself, well, I'm not on fire like that. So just everybody's right where they are. Uh, but that's how it was for me, and um, uh, as I said, it was just such a uh, an amazing gift and a, a long honeymoon. And then at some point, I became very serious 
about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. (laughs) And I um, lost my joy for a while. And somehow I have a very um, part of me. I have an intense, passionate love of of life and uh, maybe a, a celebratory in my better moments um, attitude. And um, and at some point I misconstrued some teachings and um, and felt somehow not consciously, but unconsciously, that it wasn't okay to really love like, like I did. I remember sitting one long retreat with a Burmese master many years ago, and each evening he would end the talk saying, you know, may you speedily um, get off the wheel of samsara and escape from the woes of this world. Um, and it was a, a, a very compassionate and, and loving benediction, but there was something in there and in some teachings that can have one think that the idea is to get out of here as quickly as you can, and it's not really okay to um, appreciate and love life. And I... I wasn't alone in this. I think I'll, what, I'll, what I want to do is read to you a, um, a passage that is from uh, Ajahn Sumedho. I read from him the last, retreat, last uh, talk. Ajahn Sumedho, the, really the senior Western uh, Theravadan monk. He says... Uh, Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel just compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. And there are some particular teachings that... uh, as I say, can be um, can lead one to think that um, uh, it's not okay to open to to joy. Some beautiful, profound teachings. I'll share two, just so you get a sense of 
um, what I mean. One that perhaps you're familiar with is uh, the uh, concept of Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. This is uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's definition of Samvega. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Now, Samvega is actually a very important place in practice, uh, but the operative word words in that definition is uh, realizing the futility and the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. But once you see the teachings and understand what the Buddha is pointing to, he's saying, don't get caught up in life as it's normally lived, in life as he saw before he decided to teach how everyone around wants to be happy and are doing just the very things that cause suffering. But you hear, oh, the meaninglessness of life, the me- find a way out of this meaningless cycle, and sometimes you, you don't get the full understanding of that definition. Or another concept, also a very important concept, Nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, Nibida, which, depending upon what translation you read, has a very different tone to it. And there's a, a beautiful essay by uh, Andy Alinsky, head of the uh, uh, study center, uh, on this uh, concept of Nibida and the different ways, the different takes that, that people can understand it. Nibida, in one translation, one should abide in the utter disgust of the, ab- of the aggregates. Nibida being translated as utter disgust. And the aggregates, this, these five skandhas or skandhas that make up the human experience form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. That's another way of saying one should have utter disgust for this mind-body process. Sounds like fun. Or another translation, one should develop um, utter revulsion. He should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. That's another translation. So you hear that and you think, oh my God, I've been trying so hard just to look at myself in the mirror and and feel okay about it. And they're saying, oh, I should develop utter disgust for what I'm seeing. I got that one already. (laughs) How about a little bit the other side? But as Andy uh, points out, uh, a better translation, better definition for nibida 
is um, one should develop disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. Disenchantment that is not being enchanted by this mind-body process, whether it's this one you find yourself in or those around you. But one should break the enchantment, break the spell, so that you see clearly and are not uh, under that sway. That makes sense, doesn't it? So, again, I saw that I, was, I wasn't alone in this misunderstanding of thinking that it's not okay to appreciate this mind and body and others around me and life itself. And when I, when I realized that um, I had lost my joy, so to speak, I, uh, fortunately, instead of turning away from uh, the teachings, I wanted to take a deeper look and see just what does the Buddha say about developing true happiness. Besides the obvious, ultimate, um, lofty experience of awakened mind, Nibbana, is there anything short of that? And when I did take a look, uh, I found a really um, beautiful body of teachings that when um, when understood and, and put together um, could really lead one uh, not only to Nibbana but to experiencing well-being all along the way. The Buddha said go for the highest happiness and you can experience all the other true happinesses along the way and that they actually create, create the conditions for that highest happiness. This is one um, translation of uh, the Dhammapada, Thomas Byram's uh, translation, the Buddha, quoting the Buddha, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. There are a number of different words that talk about these states of well-being. <clears throat> Wholesome states, kusala, I mentioned I think last time, Kusala, states of well-being that are happy within themselves and lead to more happiness, as opposed to akusala, states of suffering and that lead to more suffering. <clears throat> and they can be translated as joy, as in joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the four Brahma-viharas, sympathetic joy, one of the five uh, jhana factors, um, 
and uh, many other kinds of happiness or gladness, pamoja, gladness, sukha, happiness, contentment, lots of different flavors. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. And so when I took a look and said, okay, well, what, what, what does the Buddha say and how can it be cultivated? Um, I, as I said, was inspired by a number of beautiful teachings. One that wasn't from the Buddha so much, but from um, the Dalai Lama uh, in his book, The Art of Happiness. It's a, a wonderful book. He starts out that book with this sentence. He says, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that land. The purpose of life is to be happy. This is not usually what we, what we think of often when we think about the selflessness of Dharma practice, unless you're talking about the highest happiness. But the purpose of life is to be happy. If we can connect with the well-being that's right inside of us, then everybody benefits, don't they? So, as I looked at uh, the teachings, there are three particular teachings that um, have struck me as being um, pointers to open up to true well-being. And when I say joy, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are many, many different flavors. So if the word joy trips you up, Sometimes people say, awakening joy, give me a break. I'll take not being miserable. Thank you. you know. um, don't let it snag you or think, oh, this is about skipping through the fields of daisies and just you know, being in la-la land. Uh, any of those qualities or states of well-being that resonate with you, uh, that's, uh, that's your doorway, whether it's ease, contentment, peace, happiness. Well-being is really the, the underlying uh, essence of what I'm talking about. So three teachings that have struck me. First teaching is about, uh, is the teaching on wise effort where the Buddha talks about four kinds of efforts. The, the, the technical definition of wise effort is, uh, includes four aspects, two about unwholesome states and two about wholesome states. He says, guard against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen, like greed, hatred, and delusion, jealousy, envy, all of those things. Guard against them. Don't put yourself in temptation's way or um, harm's way. 
Second, if an unwholesome state has arisen, then learn how to overcome it so it doesn't take you over. And a lot of our practice is about working with these unwholesome states, whether it's fear or wanting or uh, anger or whatever, how to work with them when they arise. And then two wholesome aspects of wise effort. The third is to develop wholesome states that have not yet arisen as we're doing developing mindfulness, a very wholesome state, one of the the most profound of all wholesome states because it develops all the other ones or developing loving kindness or compassion or patience or generosity, you can consciously develop those states as I'm sure you've been finding for yourself. And the fourth of the uh, wise efforts is when a wholesome state has arisen, he says it's good to maintain and increase that wholesome state. He says, this is a good thing, to maintain and increase wholesome states that have arisen. Your mind might go, well, wait a moment, isn't that getting attached to them? Well, here's the tricky part. When a wholesome state has arisen, if you have the response, oh, this is so good, how do I get more? Bring it on. Please don't go away. You've just turned it into an unwholesome state. Because any kind of grasping or wanting or uh, bargaining for more to happen, you are in the middle of attachment and that's an unwholesome state. But he does say it's skillful and beneficial when that state has arisen, to maintain and increase it in another way than grasping. And that is by being present for it, by just noticing how good it feels. And in, in one discourse, this is in... Uh, uh, Majima uh, number 99. The, the Buddha, he gives an example. He says, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act. He says, while in the middle of a generous act, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. Oh, I'm being generous now. Not I hope everybody sees how generous I am and check it out, you know, which is just more reification of self. But he says, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. Oh, it feels so good. And in the discourse, he says that there's a gladness that is connected with this wholesome state, a feeling of uplift, a feeling of lightness, a feeling of joy. 
and he says, that gladness connected with what is wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says, that gladness, one gains um, inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, one gladdens the heart by tuning into that wholesome feeling. And you've probably seen this for yourself. Suppose you're kind of going through your day, maybe even in a little funky kind of a a feeling, and all of a sudden, some you see some kids playing and they touch your heart and it's so cute, you know, and you might forget for a moment that you were bummed out, you know, just, oh, look at that. And it can dispel it in a moment. Or suppose uh, you're moved out of kindness to do something for, for somebody and whatever you were experiencing before, that uplift dispels the previous states. So to pay attention to that gladness when a wholesome state arises. And there is a a neuroscience basis for this as well. Because um, we're often missing out on the good and missing out on the joys of life. And it takes practice to notice the gladness. My friend Rick Hansen, who's written a lot of neuroscience uh, and and Dharma um, and is a regular visitor to to the joy course that I teach, he says, the brain, our brains are like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. Those are the ones that stick. And the good stuff, oh yeah, that's how it's, it's nice, I got lucky, or it's a, uh, yeah, that's a sweet moment, what, but what about the next one? You know, I, I read one, Mm-hmm. One study, one research study that said for most people, when you have a negative experience, a negative encounter, it takes, on the average, seven positive encounters to balance that out. You know, somebody snaps at you and you're kind of reverberating through a lot of the day. And that's what's staying with you. And you know, maybe seven people say, oh, hi, nice to see you. How are you? And and then maybe you start to chill out after a while. That's just how we're wired up. And so we are looking for what's wrong. And this, again, in neuroscience, maybe some of you are familiar with this little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in, uh, in our brains called the amygdala that scans the horizon for danger. 
And it's a good thing that it does because, you know, we, we want to wake up when there's danger, but it can get very overactivated, particularly when we are under stress. When we're stressed at all, the amygdala is firing that much more and we tend to overlook positive experiences. Probably one or two people can relate to stress in your daily life. That's the big disease in our culture. So it can easily be missed, but if you really pay attention to that gladness connected with the wholesome, that feeling of uplift um, nourishes us. That's how we can maintain and increase the wholesome states when they arise. And this is something to reflect on in your own practice because I would bet that you've probably had a wholesome state or two arise today, even if it seems like most of the day was dukkha-filled, there might have been one or two pleasant moments, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. But if we don't pay attention to them, they come and go and we tend to fixate on whatever story we have going through our mind or uh, the particular mood in our body. So this is one of the um, one of the um, objectives in the talk. When you have a wholesome state arising, don't miss it. Really let yourself feel it. Rick Hansen has a formula which he's, I think, now reduced in recent times. He said, when you're feeling a, f a state of well-being, let your awareness rest in it for 30 seconds. And he says, if you do this six times in a day, I know that's three minutes of well-being, if you can handle it. <laughs> and you do that over a two-week period, you will notice a shift in your level of well-being. Two reasons. One, you're starting to deepen the neural pathways of well-being and really letting it register. And two, you are practicing, you're getting into the habit of looking for the good. And so when it starts to be a habit, you start to notice more and more. You see what you look for. There's a a phenomenon, I forget if I mentioned it in the last, last talk, of confirmation bias. Did I talk about that here? No. Confirmation bias where it's been shown that you will find what you look for. If you are looking for, for instance, how everybody around is going to disappoint you, or uh, the world is an unfriendly place, you will have ample evidence to corroborate your hypothesis and your brain will actually selectively notice the things that confirm your belief. On the 
Conversely, if you are looking for the good in people, if you are noticing how amazing it is to be alive and things like that, your brain will selectively pick out and confirm your belief. So to, to start looking for what's good and what's right, not to pretend that everything is, is hunky-dory. No, I know the first noble truth, there's suffering in life, I got it. But to not just dwell on that. And when there's well-being here, you start to um, nourish yourself. And as you nourish yourself and open up to the well-being, it's actually creating a bigger container for you to process and digest and understand and not be overwhelmed by all the, the dukkha that's inevitably encountered. So that's the, the second principle. First principle, to cultivate wholesome states and to maintain and increase them when they arise, that wise effort. And the second one, when a wholesome state has arisen, to feel the gladness associated with the wholesome state. And then the third teaching that has struck me, uh, teaching um, that I love, probably many of you are familiar from uh, Majima 19, where he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Very simple. Can you argue with that? What you frequently think and ponder upon will become the inclination of your mind. That's how practice happens. We're practicing habits. And if you practice anger, then you become more and more of an angry person. If you practice loving kindness or clarity or generosity, that's what happens. And in neuroscience, the axiom, famous axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. As you frequently think and ponder, you're developing neural pathways that um, become your, more of your default setting. So these are the, the three principles that I've found very helpful uh, in, uh, in my own formal practice and in my, in my daily life. <clears throat> and now I wanted to talk a little bit about how to apply this in your practice and a few different wholesome states that uh, have struck me as uh, worthwhile to consciously develop. First, uh, something that I want to um, just have us reflect on is um, the fact that we don't have to go looking outside of ourselves for happiness. It's right inside. That's why the Buddha 
taught, he said that others could see and experience the freedom that he saw. So you might think of yourself as, you know, well, I don't know. I, this happened to me when I was younger and I don't know if I could ever really be happy. Don't believe it. That's your natural state, however obscured it might be. And we all want to be happy. Every one of us. Anybody here that doesn't want to be happy? And if you say, well, if I had more courage, I'd raise my hand and say, yeah, I like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. Whatever turns you on. But when you think about it, everything that you do, and don't take my word for it, just check it out for yourself, everything that you do is motivated in some sense because you think this will make me feel better or this will make me feel less bad. Not just you, everyone. As misguided as we might be, and people can get very misguided as to what leads to true happiness, we are continually motivated by something inside of us that says, oh, I'll feel a little better because of this. Often not realizing the consequences and we later say, what was I thinking? But we all are motivated by a very pure sense inside of wishing for greater well-being and happiness. So you have what you need. Why else would you come and sit here in the forest refuge doing this very strange thing of spending a week or a month or months just sitting and quieting down and taking a look. You know, we all know this is not easy. But there's something in you that has said, this is going to be good for me. Even stronger than all the, the doubts and the self-judgments and the uh, whatever negativities there's something in you that's called you that says, this is good. You might not even be able to explain why to anybody, but you know it's so. So what we're doing is getting in touch with that place inside of us that truly wants to be happy and activating it and then seeing what will bring true happiness. What really leads to true happiness? I wanna share with you a picture to remind you of your natural state. This is a picture of um, a baby named Chloe Thomas, who was um, born eight weeks premature. She's from Melbourne, Australia. And this picture, she hadn't quite come to uh, nine months after conception, but I think you'll get the idea 
reminding of who you really are. This is Chloe. Do you remember? I don't know, that wasn't me, I don't know. This is who we are. When we come into this world, if a baby is fed and diapered and receives at least a little bit of love and care, this is what comes out. You know, a baby squeals with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? It's one reason we like being around babies because they remind us of that. But it's not just babies. When they uh, put an adult in an fMRI machine, if that adult um, doesn't have pain in the body or uh, any stress in the mind or the heart, those are pretty big right there, but a stress-free adult, what they naturally exhibit, five qualities. They are conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's who you really are. And that's, maybe you've touched it probably, probably number of moments here when you are not going through a lot of stress, what naturally arises, emerges, is a feeling of ease and contentment and caring and calm and conscious and creative. It's all right there. You've probably seen it for yourself at times. <clears throat> so, so just a few um, wholesome states in the, uh, in the program that I put together. I um, picked out 10 wholesome states from the teachings that are not unfamiliar to you that can be practiced. And then when you cultivate that wholesome state, the idea is when it arises, don't miss it. Let yourself feel it. And it's one thing, again, in your practice, it's one thing to know, oh, I'm feeling pretty good right now. What's for lunch? And it's another to know, oh, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Let's feel what it's like to feel good. Not just an idea, but an actual embodied exploration of savoring of letting it register, letting that gladness of the wholesome register in your consciousness. So I'll mention just a, a few of these because there's not that much time. The first of these 10 that is uh, the key, I think, to this whole process is um, the intention for true well-being. As it said, the Buddha says, intending, I tell you, is karma through body, speech, and mind. 
or the Tibetans say, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. That if you can get clear on your intention, that sets everything in motion. And the intention for well-being, the intention, whatever way you say it, to be happy, to open up to uh, your full potential, whatever way you have of saying it, getting clear on that intention is a very important step in this process. And sometimes we're not clear. Me, happy, do I deserve to be happy? You know, when I find the right person, then I'll be happy. When I get the right job, then I'll be happy. When I find the right living situation, then I'll be happy. When I retire, then I'll be happy. You know? Why postpone it? Right now, how can I open up to as much well-being as possible? And it starts with that decision. Just to give you an example of, of this. This was um, uh, this is a piece written by Martin Seligman, who is the, the father of positive psychology, uh, a, a beautiful movement in the last 20 years that changed around from looking at pathology, how we're so messed up to, oh, what it would be, be like to look at how we can uh, bring out the best in each other in psycholo psychology. And he became the head of the uh, American Psychological Association uh, in the 90s. And he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, which uh, describes, it's really the, the, the Bible of positive psychology. And he talks about how the positive psychology movement started within him. He says, the moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm really not all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent. And when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away and then after a while came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, she said, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> this was for me an epiphany, nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. 
that was the start of the positive psychology movement. Just that resolve to change, I'm going to change. And no matter how long you've been doing it one way, if you have an intention to change, you will change if you put your heart there. And as I, I said last week in one of the reflections, if we can widen our intention so that it's not just about, oh, I want to feel good, but that my well-being becomes a gift to others, that up-levels the whole motivation for practice. Because as I said before, everybody benefits from your well-being. So actually, before we go on, I just um, invite you to go inside for a moment. And get in touch, perhaps, with the fact that you do really want to be happy as I said before. And then see if you can get in touch with your own personal intention, heartfelt decision to do your part to bring about true happiness for yourself. If there's resistance, that's okay, notice that. But just hold your practice within that context as the Dalai Lama says, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just give that to yourself for a moment. Whatever word resonates for you, peace, well-being, ease, freedom from suffering. If it seems like a worthwhile endeavor, just to prime your intention, as Dan Siegel says, by connecting with that honest, authentic wish. And then see how your own well-being becomes beneficial to everybody in your life and spills out to benefit all beings everywhere. Okay, and you might um, come back to that reflection um, regularly in your practice. So that's the, the, the start and continually coming back to that intention. Then there are a number of other wholesome states. I'll just mention them uh, uh, briefly now and uh, speak about one, one last one. Um, mindfulness itself is the basic tool for a joyful life because mindfulness cultivates all the wholesome states 
and weakens all the unwholesome states. So the very act of paying attention, of being mindful, you are cultivating all of those states. And when you are actually mindful, it really feels good to connect with the moment. Even if you're having a very difficult time being mindful, there's an awareness that sees that's not caught in it. So mindfulness and feeling the wholesomeness of mindful state. Opening up to dukkha is also a very direct path towards well-being. And the Buddha in one beautiful teaching, he talks about how suffering can lead to faith. Faith can lead to gladness, joy, happiness, contentment, peace, the highest happiness. Suffering itself, how we work with it and open up to it and aren't afraid of it, is the very thing that tenderizes the heart and can uh, give us a sense of courage and fearlessness and make us look for things that weren't there that we didn't see before. How many people here have been motivated by their own suffering or dukkha in their life to look for answers and led them on to uh, the, the Dharma path? Just anyone? Yeah, see, that's how it works. It shakes us out of our complacency. So as you're working with your sorrows and pains and suffering, see it as a very direct um, path to deepening faith and courage. Sila, like those precepts that we took, the ground of uh, being aligned with our values. Every time you are choosing the high road, you're experiencing what uh, the Buddha talked of as the bliss of blamelessness. So that's a very good motivator, not just to avoid suffering, but oh, this feels good. Letting go. Every time you let go, notice how good that feels. That simplifying. Pay attention. Ah, I can let go in this moment. Oh, how good that feels. Loving ourselves, metta for ourselves, metta for others, compassionate action. All of those heart qualities, when you're in the middle of experiencing them, don't miss them. The the joy of just simply being, resting in the moment. All of these wholesome states, and there are many more too, don't miss them. And I'll end the talk with uh, one, uh, one that I didn't mention, the third in this sequence, and that is um, gratitude. In the Mangala Sutta, the Blessing Sutta, the Buddha says, to be content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. And gratitude is a very powerful um, antidote 
to the contracted mind. <clears throat> As one, uh, one Tibetan teacher says, gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish. As you say thank you to the world, you can receive all the blessings. You know, and, but if you're kind of going around grumbling and complaining, there's no room for the blessings to get in. Right? When you say thank you, then you see the bigger picture and you can have the energy and resources to work with the, the difficulties. As an example, just to show you uh, how this works to pay attention to the wholesome state, uh, invite you to close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind some blessing in your life someone or something that you're grateful to or grateful for. And have an image of that person or that circumstance so that it becomes a bit more alive. And as you reflect on the blessing, just give a simple, silent, Thank you from your heart to that person or to life. Thank you. And now let your awareness just relax and rest in that feeling of gratitude. Thank you. You don't have to make anything more of it. Just relax into it. Thank you. You might take a breath and we'll do another one. Bring to mind another blessing. There's probably so many, someone, something. Have an image. And then a simple, sincere thank you right from your heart. Thank you. Tune into it. Bring mindfulness to that wholesome state. And take a breath and we'll do one last one. One more blessing. Someone, something, Have an image. A simple thank you. Just relax into it. Notice what it feels like to feel grateful. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. <clears throat> so to close, I, I wanna share uh, one story from the, from the course, and maybe some of you have, have um, heard this before if you've taken the course. Anybody who has taken the JOY course here? 
more people, a couple of people. Um, this is the story of um, the, the most, for me, the most important uh, meaningful story in, uh, in all of this for me, which is the story of my mom who um, uh, passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 94. And my mom, uh, by the way, is a YouTube star. Uh, if you go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, <clears throat> the, the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life. Um, it is up to, I think, 408,000 views at last, at last count. Um, and my mom, um, at the age of 89, I visited her as I was, she lived down in uh, Los Angeles, I live up in Berkeley, and uh, I was visiting her, my sister who lived right near her was going away for a few weeks and, I deci and we decided I'd come and spend a week with her um, and keep her company and we had a good relationship. Um, and I was uh, writing the chapter on gratitude in the book and I came with all of this research about gratitude and uh, it's very compelling. There's, it improves your immune system and your social relationships and your uh, uh, exercise and self-care, lots of things. You know, there's books written on, and I had all this research with me. And my mom um, happens to be, as she says in, in the YouTube, uh, as a Jewish mother, she had, uh, Jewish mothers have certain genes uh, that, um, that can't be acquired. They can only be finely honed, as she says. Those genes are genes of complaining. And in, in Yiddish, it's called kvetching, right? So my mom had been a complainer her whole life. Uh, very funny, a lot of good qualities, but she always would see what's wrong, right? So there I was with all this gratitude research and I said, hey mom, check it out, what do you think? You know? And she said, yeah, it's very impressive. And I said, hey mom, wouldn't it be cool to do a gratitude practice? She rolled her eyes and said, look, I know my life is very blessed, but I've been seeing the glass half empty for a long time and I don't think I'm about to change. And then I said, some inspiration came through me and I said, I'm curious, mom, if you could change, would you change? She said, if I could change, I would, but don't hold your breath. Right? And then I said, well, how about if we play a game? I didn't have a plan. This is just kind of coming through me. Uh, and because she liked to play games. We were playing Scrabble while this whole thing was going on. She's a big Scrabble, great Scrabble player. Um, loved to beat me. Um, and I said, you know, you can say things in two different ways. You could say, I know my life is blessed, but this darn TV reception is driving me crazy. Or you could say, the TV reception is lousy, and I know my life is blessed. 
And she said, mm, yeah, I see, I, that, I can see the difference. And I said, well, how about every time you complain, I'll just remind you what you know. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, suppose you say, um, as she often did, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey, California. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so cold here. And I say, and? And you say, and my life is very blessed. And she said, okay. She had the kind of, kind of playfulness that said, okay, let's play the game. We had the most amazing week as the complaints rolled off her tongue one after another. And I was very mindful catching each one, you know. <laughs> oh, God, why does he say that? And, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> and we laughed the whole week. We literally, after a while, you know, she saw how, how incessant it was and we laughed the whole, it was, it was, she had a lot of fun. And she kind of saw her mind and we kept up with it. When I got home, I called her a lot those first couple of weeks, more than I usually do. And there was a friend at home uh, down with her who was in on the game. And when my, when my sister came back, my sister has very similar habit to my mom of tending to see the negative. Her comment after not too long was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she wasn't particularly happy at, at first. She, she got used to it after a while. But amazingly, this stayed for the last five years of her life. It changed everything. And I put in the book a poem that she wrote to me, it was about seven months after this whole thing started. Um, in our family, we would write poems to each other for our birthdays, that was the family tradition. And so she wrote this poem to me, this birthday poem. This is an excerpt from it. Uh, and her eyes were, she was starting to go uh, lose her eyesight to macular degeneration, there's a, a reference in the poem. She says, 90, is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I'm blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anyone can change. Don't sell yourself short. Don't think, oh, I've been practicing it one way and so this is the way I'm stuck. You can change. It just takes inclining the mind that way. And that, as I said, that lasted the, f the whole last five years of her life. Every conversation 
was peppered. She still complained, but it was, and we're so blessed. And she really meant it. Even to the very end, she had, she had cancer the last year of her life and she was very grateful because she didn't have pain until just the very, very end. And um, there she was in bed the last, last six months, she couldn't get out of bed. Her eyesight was down. She couldn't read the passion in her life. She could only hear when her hearing aids were turned really high. And there she was talking about how blessed she was. And a few weeks before the end, I was down there visiting with her. And I said, uh, I walked into her house, one, her, her um, bedroom one morning, and she was very deep in thought. It, to me, seemed deep in thought. And then she opened her eyes and she could say, see I was there. And I said, um, wow, mom, what was going through your mind? And she said, actually, my mind was devoid of all thought except thank you, God, Thank you, God. And I said, wow, mom, can I quote you on that? And she said, will I get a commission? <laughs> Always had a joke. And at the very, very end, I said to her, um, you know, as she was ready to go, I said, do you, um, do you want me to say any words at your memorial service? And she said, oh yeah, sure, absolutely. She wanted to have the last word. And... Uh, and so she dictated a, a number of things. And then she said, I don't know what I did to have such an incredible run in my life. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but I've been so incredibly blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a small word and it means everything. It's really possible to change. And so coming back to our own practice, besides going through whatever challenges that deepen your capacity to be with that first noble truth, that give you courage and strength and faith, this is a very crucial part of practice, but that's only half of the show. Whenever you're feeling a wholesome state, let it be your practice. Don't miss it. As the Buddha says, cultivating the wholesome state and maintaining and increasing it when it arises by being very present for it. Let it nourish you. Let it inspire you. Notice all the goodness inside you and around you. And that will bring a, a fuller flowering of practice that can lead to uh, those very, very high states of awakening and freedom. So let's sit for just a moment.
So we end with the sharing of the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.